Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russia and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Olga Oliker, alone with my computer because we've had snow and we've had travel and we've had all these other things which have made it impossible to get into the studio and have also made it hard for my co-host, Jeff Mankoff, to join me to record this introduction. Um, but before all of this happened, before the snow days and the travel piled up and attacked us and kept us out of the studio, we were very lucky to sit down with Dr. William Taubman. Dr. Taubman is the Bertrand Snell Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Amherst College, and he's the author of several books, including a biography of Nikita Khrushchev, which won the Pulitzer Prize for Biography in 2004. Most recently, however, he's written a new biography of Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev. We discuss uh, his book, we discuss Gorbachev, uh, who and what inspired him, his political trajectory, how he rose through the ranks of the Communist Party, what about him enabled his success, what undermined his success. And we also talked to Bill about what made him decide to write this biography, uh, what challenges he faced in writing it, and how his own relationship with Mikhail Sergeyevich evolved over the course of many interviews. Let's get started. In the Russian Roulette studio today, we have William Taubman. Um, Dr. Taubman is the author of a number of very important uh, books on Russian and Soviet history, the most recent of which is a biography of uh, Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev uh, titled Gorbachev, His Life and Times. So we're thrilled to have, to have Dr. Taubman here in the studio to talk about this book, to talk about Russian history, and well, we'll see where else the conversation goes. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. So maybe let's just start from the beginning. How did you decide to write a biography of Gorbachev? I had previously written a biography of Khrushchev, uh, which came out in 2003. And Khrushchev to Gorbachev is just the Yeah, it was a direct uh, link because Khrushchev started and then retreated and then was ousted. And when Gorbachev came in, he in effect picked up where Khrushchev had left off and went much, much farther. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's interesting that having sort of survived the Khrushchev experience, I guess, the, the Soviet Union then had some of the similar problems that Khrushchev tried to address, continue to fester in the 70s and 80s. And then a figure like Gorbachev uh, emerges a couple generations later. And do you see Gorbachev as having um, been impacted by the Khrushchev experience in driving him to these reforms? Yes, in several important ways. I mean, for for one, he was inspired as a young man climbing the ladder in the Communist Party in Stavropol in 1956 by Khrushchev's secret speech denouncing Stalin and Stalinism. Um, and he was frustrated when Khrushchev himself backtracked and then when Khrushchev was ousted and Brezhnev and company put things in reverse. So he had been dreaming, in effect, of resuming some kind of reform. On the other hand, he was very leery of what happened to Khrushchev, his ouster. And throughout his time in power, Gorbachev had one eye on the possibility that he too would be uh, ousted. And I think that helps to explain a lot of how he handled himself, Mm -hmm. how he kept the 
hardliners in the Communist Party Politburo close uh, so that they would not. He referred to them at one point as a rabid dog who had to be kept on a tight leash, mm-hmm. and that's what he tried to do. And yeah, one, of the, sorry, one of the interesting things I learned from the book uh, also was that Gorbachev had been very close from his university days with um, Zdenek Mlinaj, who was one of the architects of the Prague Spring and had a similar uh, experience of maybe flying a little too close to the sun and, and then falling. It's really quite amazing in retrospect that Gorbachev's best friend, several people including some of his classmates at Moscow University told me this. His best friend was Zdenek Mlinash, who, as you say, in 1968 was the chief ideologist of the Prague Spring working with Alexander Dubček. Of course, in 1950s, early 50s, Mlinash was not yet the Mlinash of 1968. But Mlinash was clearly an idealistic communist who understood that Stalinism was rotten and awful. Um, So even at that age, at that point, Gorbachev was 21, 22, 23. He was already thinking uh, heretical thoughts, even though he hadn't put it all together in the in the kind of overview and the program that he eventually adopted. Yeah, Gorbachev was a very strange product of this system, and yet somehow he made it to the very top of it. I mean, could you talk a little bit about the circumstances that allowed somebody like Gorbachev to be in a position to implement some of those lessons? Well, I mentioned in my in the introduction to the book, Gorbachev once said, told us, my wife and me in an interview, that he was both a product and an anti-product mm-hmm. of the system. The product was visible in the peon of praise to Stalin that won him a high school prize. He wrote an essay praising Stalin. Um, But in a way, and this is, I don't think, obvious, even Gorbachev's sort of revolutionary or at least radical reformist impetus was also in a way a product of the system because after all, communism tried to change Russia and the world. Communism uh, did change Russia and the it world. It did change. <laughs> and so when we look at Gorbachev trying to change communism, it in a way goes back to the confidence that he got as growing up in the system that the world could be changed. So do you see him as somebody who maybe not all along, but at some point makes a conscious decision that he's going to work from within, that he's going to play the system, as it were, until he can fix it? Or do you think it was much more evolutionary? I certainly couldn't name a date. Mm-hmm a year. But as you look at him evolve, you can see, for example, uh, in 1968, he has worked his way up in the Stavropol Communist Party. And in 1970, he's going to be named the party boss of Stavropol region. But in 1968, he seriously considers giving it up and becoming an academic. He's gotten another degree. Uh, He somehow senses that this might be a better place for him to reflect and think, but he doesn't do it. And I think when he decides to accept the promotion, he is now on his way, not necessarily to the top, but up and up. And he knows that he's going to have to compromise as he plays that role. He's going to have to keep his mouth shut at key times. And he does. Yeah, He comes across as a very um, self-assured and ambitious person, which I'm sure no doubt helped his his rise. But it's interesting that there's also this degree of self-knowledge that he well, has to... I, I, th- I think his self-confidence is a psychological characteristic which is dominant almost in him and without which you can't understand uh, 
his willingness to take on the changes that right. he tries to to take on. And um, but it also, I think, gets him into trouble because he is confident not only that he can change the system, but he's also confident he can control the hardliners by keeping them on a tight mm-hmm. leash. He's confident that he can defeat Yeltsin, right. which, of course, in the end, Yeltsin defeats him. Mm-hmm. So his confidence both explains his ambition and his successes, but also undermines him in the end. And I wonder, um, you know, when you said he, he had an eye on the history and what happened to Khrushchev, was it that he was worried uh, what, about what Khrushchev, happened to Khrushchev happening to him in the sense that he personally wouldn't be able to hold on to power or that the reforms would be undermined and reversed, which, which I mean, it can certainly be both. I think it was both. It but was both. if it's both, there's a bit of a gap because if you're truly a reformer and you're working through the system, part of your goal is to put yourself out of business, isn't it? Um, and it doesn't sound like that was that he'd gotten quite that far in the thinking. No, I don't think so. I mean, he has he says, and in retrospect, that if he he's accused by some people of wanting power above all, mm-hmm. and he says, if I really wanted power above all, I would have sat there and presided over the status quo. And the fact that I changed, tried to change the system showed that I wanted to change it. That was my main my mm-hmm. main goal. I think he understood that. To a degree, not sufficiently, that there would be resistance from all sorts of mm-hmm. sectors outside the Kremlin. But he was, I think, most concerned about his own colleagues pulling the kind of coup against him that they pulled against Khrushchev, which, of course, they did in the end. Yeah. Again, one of the things I find fascinating about the rise of Gorbachev is that the fact that he had these sort of heterodox views was not a secret. Um, and yet he kept being advanced through the the party system and ultimately was put in the very top position by some of these very people who he would later accuse of, of betraying him. Can you talk a little bit about- well, who would later betray him? Well, <laughs> who there's a lot of betrayal going on. But can you talk a little bit about how how it is that somebody like Gorbachev made it to a position where he could Gorbachev. Well, the the way I try to sum this up, which is probably an oversimplification, is that oddly enough, Gorbachev struck a lot of people who were his bosses as he made the climb as the kind of ideal product of the communist system, the new Soviet man. He was smart. He was thoughtful. He was honest. He was incorruptible. As many of his associates told us in Stavropol when we interviewed them, they talked very quickly about how well he treated his wife in contrast to so many of the Mm -hmm. bureaucrats there who took all sorts of liberties. So I think uh, the the man who was primary in advancing him was Andropov, Mm -hmm. whom he met down there because Andropov took vacations in Stavropol. And when I talked to people about Andropov, like, for example, Bogomolov, who was Mm -hmm. the head of one of the institutes and had worked for Andropov in the 60s, he said Andropov who was not highly educated, aspired to bring himself to the level of his educated associates, aides. And Gorbachev struck him as a kind of ideal, young, energetic man, the perfect man to push along. So in a sense, it's an irony that the ideal product, or at least what they regarded Mm -hmm. as the ideal product of the Soviet system turned out to be its gravedigger. But, I mean, as Jeff said, people were aware that he had um, 
unusual ideas that he wanted. He was looking for things to change. Um, but presumably, they, didn't, they either didn't expect him to succeed or they didn't understand to what degree he was willing to push this. I think it was the latter. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think he put together the whole program, as it were, until 1987, mm-hmm. 88. And when they first encountered him in the 70s, uh, they knew he was unhappy with the way the system worked. They knew he wanted change. Mm-hmm. But that they didn't know any more than he did where he was going to end up. Yeah. But I guess you could say there were a lot of people, even within the system, who wanted some kind of change at that point. I mean, I've heard Andropov described sometimes as being not a reformer, but somebody who wanted to do things in a different way from how they'd been done. Well, Gorbachev describes himself and others describe him as a shizdysiatnik, a man of the 1960s, a child of the 20th Party Congress where Mm -hmm. Khrushchev gave his secret speech. And there were a lot of them. Even in the Central Committee, it turned out, among around him, his aide, somebody like Anatoly Chernyayev, his primary right. advisor or aide on foreign policy. As for Andropov, uh, I forget who says this. I quote it in the book. Maybe it's Arbatov. Somebody quotes uh, Andropov as saying, uh, eventually, after we fix the economy, after people have enough to eat and are satisfied, then... 20 years from now, we can begin on the kinds of political changes that we eventually need. How Chinese? Like the Chinese. <laughs> yeah. Wait, though, there. Gorbachev changed the, um, the scenario. Well, and I, but I think it's also it, – the practice is harder than the theory, right? Uh, you can think that, oh, we're going to feed everybody and then we're going to work on the political change. But, I mean, Lenin also knew that if you give people enough to eat, they start thinking about political change. <gasps> You give them just enough, just enough well, that they're still a little dissatisfied. They're- Gorbachev decided that the obstacle to political change were the hardliners and, and the par- in the party, and so they had to be moved aside. Mm-hmm. And that was really when the political change began in 87, 88, 89. Yeah, well, and we haven't talked about it yet, but of course, the reason that Gorbachev is so lionized in the West has to do not only with the reforms that he carried out within the Soviet Union, but for probably being the the single figure who more than any other was responsible for ending the Cold War. Can you talk a little bit about how I have a, I, I, Again, this may be too simple, but I have a way of, of resolving the big debate about Reagan and Gorbachev as their comparative contributions to ending the Cold okay. War. I say, you have Reagan and Gorbachev. Take away Gorbachev. What happens? The Cold War continues because Reagan is negotiating with Romanov or Grishin or mm-hmm. some old fogey like that. And his ideas aren't taken literally, right? I mean, to some extent, some of the things that Reagan said, for instance, about nuclear weapons weren't meant literally. They were meant as rhetoric. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gorbachev decided to run with it. And, you know, there are examples of this that abound in history, um, you know, where somebody says something off the cuff and somebody else says, okay, let's do it. And as a result, I don't know, you get it. You get a deal that keeps the United States from bombing Syria. Um, all sorts of things can happen that way. Now go back and take Gorbachev mm-hmm. and Reagan again, and this time take away Reagan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You get, I think, with Bush, the end of the Cold War. Yeah. So, or or so, Carter. Do you get that or, with Carter? Or Carter. Uh, well, that's too far in too the far future. But, <laughs> but I think that shows that Gorbachev was the key. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how he – 
came to the conclusion that the Cold War had to end and that he was to the conclusion that he, the steps that he was willing to take, such as the withdrawal of Soviet troops from Eastern Europe, had to be taken? I think it was a combination of thinking that the drain of the Cold War and the arms race uh, and all the power that gave to military industrial complexes on both sides precluded the kinds of economic reforms he wanted to carry out, the shift in priorities from the military to consumers. Um, but it was also, I think, the nuclear danger itself. Mm -hmm. He took that very seriously, especially after Chernobyl, mm -hmm. yeah. when the blowing up of one reactor spewed all of that radioactivity as far and wide as it did. Um, and the, the interesting thing in retrospect is that Reagan, from his side, was approaching this the same conclusion mm -hmm. that nuclear weapons not only needed to be controlled but abolished if mm -hmm. you could possibly bring it about. So at a time when neither of their entourages or circles of advisors and al even allies um, believed in that, they, the two of them did. Yeah. I guess it would have been Mondale, not Carter, wouldn't it? <laughs> that, that's a hard one to yeah. – Quite. I don't know. With That's Brzezinski. an interesting counterfactual, right? We, we, have, to, we have to fit Brzezinski, Brzezinski into this. Brzezinski, exactly. Yeah, right. That's uh, it's an interesting challenge. I was telling Cyrus mm -hmm. that I took a course with Brzezinski in 1963 at uh -huh. Columbia and kept up with him quite a bit. But I wouldn't venture a guess as to how he would have reacted <laughs> right. and put in the middle of that situation. So today in Russia, Gorbachev is not lionized. Not um, about the opposite. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you think longer term Russian historians will be kinder to him or is this going to be his lasting legacy in his home? And not only Russian historians but Russian opinion writ large. Well, that depends, I think, how you see Russia evolving. If you think Russia is developing a middle class, which is getting bigger and more uh, eager for freedoms that they don't have at the moment, uh, and if you think they will eventually prevail mm -hmm. against those like Putin and others who would like to limit them, I could see Gorbachev being viewed in retrospect as the founder of, of this this drive, mm -hmm. uninterrupted as it is uh, for long periods. On the other hand, if Russia remains uh, an, uh, an authoritarian regime under one guise or another, um, well, they, its leaders will probably continue to view Gorbachev the way uh, Putin does and the way the Chinese do. Yeah. I gather that in China, Gorbachev is, is, intently studied. is the devil in retrospect, yeah. the, the, the model to be avoided. Or at least the, the guy who screwed up. I don't, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't know the answer to this, but um, I wonder how Gorbachev is studied in Ukraine, in Georgia, in um, Central Asia. I, I, know, I know a little bit about how the Baltics view it, but that's a very Western-influenced I don't know the story. answer to that either. It's a, it's I would imagine there is greater admiration for him, even if it is a kind of. Uh, I'm not sure there is, though. I mean, I'm no? not sure in Ukraine that there is. I think it it's something it's something to ask our Ukrainian friends and colleagues. Yeah. Well, it partly depends on what they thought of him in 1991, mm -hmm. when they had their referendum on December 1st. Right. Uh, he kept telling people before it happened that it wouldn't go the way it did in favor of uh, Ukrainian independence. Absolutely. And, yeah. 
So he, at the time, was viewed as no great friend. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Since you mentioned Putin, um, you know, Gorbachev, at least early on, seemed to be at least open to some of the things that, that Putin was doing, I gather. And that relationship has become somewhat more complicated in, in recent years. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the relationship between the two of them? It is complicated indeed, and it's a little strange. Um, I think in the beginning, Gorbachev was grateful simply to have anybody other than Yeltsin <laughs> right. become the president. And he probably harbored the hope that Putin would pay him a little more respect, if not homage, in contrast to Yeltsin, who did not, of course. He may also have thought in retrospect, although even if he thinks this way, he's not likely to admit it, that he had been too fast. Mm -hmm. Gorbachev mm -hmm. had tried to do too much and that it, therefore a certain – these are almost his words I think in 2002 – a certain period of, of a certain degree of authoritarianism would be a good thing. Yeah, that was another one of the yeah. really surprising things I got from the But <laughs> as Putin carried out his, his policies and arrested people and closed down television stations and, and newspapers uh, and then rigged elections, Gorbachev got angrier and angrier and began to say some very sharp things comparing Putin's political party, United Russia, to the Communist Party under Brezhnev. Uh, so it's a mixed view. And you have to ask yourself, too, uh, whether – and this may sound sort of nasty, but I think it's only human – whether Gorbachev wanted at long last to be respected and asked his views by the president of his country as opposed to Yeltsin. And I think some of his, some of his uh, nicer words about mm -hmm. Putin might have reflected that hope that he would be considered a source of wisdom. An elder statesman. Yeah, an elder yeah. statesman. Uh, and I think that began to happen under Medvedev. Mm -hmm. But when Putin came back in in the way that he did, I think Gorbachev uh, was pretty much through with him. Although even, even now, in the, in the last couple of years, he will ask directly about it. He will say things like, well, he, uh, I, th I think he means well and I haven't broken with him entirely. And, and in foreign policy, Gorbachev's line is very close to Putin's mm -hmm. on how the United States behaved after the Cold right. War, on Ukraine, on Crimea, and especially on something like NATO expansion. Right. Well, I mean, I think this what Gorbachev hoped to accomplish through rapprochement with the United States was not what, not what we see, right? Uh, the end of the Cold War to him was not a matter of Western victory, and that's he had a vision yeah. of uh, of transcending the East-West divide in Europe, of of probably NATO and the Warsaw Pact both giving way to some mm -hmm. new architecture of security in Europe, uh, and he thought he had a promise. Yeah. This great debate about mm -hmm. what Baker said right. to him on February tenth, nineteen ninety. The new documentation, the National Security yeah, Archive, absolutely. has put out. Um, 
So, so allows he, people to draw different conclusions. Yes, I, well, I, but, I, but and I think what's important. But I think what's important from that is when you allow, when you recognize that different conclusions could have been drawn from those conversations, you have to accept that this, this is really what the Russians thought. You can also accept that this is really what the Americans thought, right? You're perfectly. Yeah. But that does what what that means is nobody's making any of it up, and you have to. Yeah, well, I think what it means is that you don't necessarily have to think that either side acted in bad faith exactly. in doing what it did, but that you can have very differing understandings of a particular event that have enormous consequences. And you can also wonder why he didn't try to codify what he understood to sure. be the, re the assurances he was yeah. getting about mm -hmm. non-expansion of NATO, which, which he didn't do. He mm -hmm. did not do. But I think at that, at that time, I mean, expa the expansion of NATO seemed so far-fetched. I'm not sure one felt the need to get it codified. I mean, I I remember when the Berlin Wall came down mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. just thinking the German unification would take forever. It didn't. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, and two, Gorbachev knew the principles. I think he had a good relationship with them. He trusted them. There was an assumption at this point that we're all in this together and we all have the same interests. And I think it was only later on when it became clear that some of those fundamental questions still hadn't been resolved. And but, interest changed. And, yeah. The time that when I think the uh, the American behavior can really be condemned in retrospect more forcefully than 1991 is 1989. Uh, you guys may not agree, but I th think that when Bush came in, Reagan having vouched <laughs> to the right wing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for Gorbachev, and Gorbachev having every expectation that that Bush would pick up where Reagan left mm -hmm. off, it was very disappointing to him that Bush declared, in effect, a kind of pause that lasted for several months. Mm -hmm. The next summit wasn't until Malta yeah. at the end of the year. Um, I, uh, you know, I've read some of the memoirs of people like Scowcroft mm -hmm. and Gates mm -hmm. and the other, and they and Scowcroft say things like, he says, I thought, I argued that Gorbachev was even more dangerous than his predecessors because he was, you know, he, he seemed, seemed like a good guy he and nicer. he could lull we can't, we can't our trust vigilance. Those. No, I, I think it's an artifact of American politics, honestly, and how presidential transitions even within a party work in this country, that you can't expect continuity. Um, you have to look as if you're you have, reaching they, your own They all have to though. look new and shiny and foreign policy is an mm -hmm. area where you can do that with very little electoral cost mm -hmm. and they all do it. Mm -hmm. I mean kind of – and if, if you talk to folks who were part – you know, who were around for the transition from Reagan to Bush and that was one of the nastier transitions despite mm -hmm. being within the same party that these people really wanted to wipe everything their predecessors had done. Well, and this gets back to the conversation we were having a little bit earlier. While I agree with you completely that if you take Reagan out of the equation but keep Gorbachev, you're going to have a similar outcome whereas if you do the opposite, you won't. Yes. That Reagan was in some ways very sui generis. Um, yes. In terms of his idealism and his belief mm -hmm. that you know you could – transcend some of these long-standing strategic and ideological problems, whereas I think Bush and the people around him, people like Scowcroft, were much more realist, yes. not necessarily realistic, but realist, mm -hmm. um, and were less willing to kind of believe that the, this new era had dawned and that we were now at the end of history. Though I do, I kind of want to go back to if you take Gorbachev out of the equation, 
Who do you have if you take Gorbachev out of the equation? Who would have been the next general secretary? Well, I named a couple of mm-hmm. them. <laughs> uh, I presume it would have come from the then Politburo. Yeah. The youngest one, apart from Gorbachev, was Romanov. Right. Mm-hmm. We, we believe, we know, Gorbachev insists that Grishin mm-hmm. aspired to it. Uh, Gromyko reluctantly pulled his name out right. and settled for being heads of, mm-hmm. head of state. Right. Uh, who else? Um, but people like that mm-hmm. would, would have continued something like the policy that they had been following now, in it's, the it's, early 80s. It's interesting. One of, uh, one of my orals questions uh, back in the uh, mid-90s, late-90s, was uh, what made the Soviet Union collapse, right? Yes. And the ans- your answer is Gorbachev. That's not a popular answer among political scientists, well, right? political science tends to discount the role of individuals, full but, stop. But, that, yes. but this is the well, conversation I'm trying to have, yes. Yeah. So, well, I, 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 just, I would never argue that Gorbachev and Gorbachev alone was the reason for the collapse of the Soviet Union. There are so many different mm-hmm. uh, processes underway, economic, social, ethnic, national, separatism, uh, all working. But the trigger is what mm-hmm. Gorbachev does. And if Gorbachev's not there, uh, I think the Cold War continues and the Soviet Union continues. How long, we don't know. And how they end, we don't know. Right. It's entirely possible, and I'm not the, the first one mm-hmm. to say this, that the Soviet Union might have lasted for 20 years and then blown up like Yugoslavia with with a war between Russia and Ukraine that uh, that is much closer to the Serb, Serb-Croat war than the current uh, mm-hmm. war, mm-hmm. which is pretty bad in itself. Yeah, I think you can argue that the Soviet Union, as it was construed in the early 1980s, couldn't long endure, but that the way that it ended and the timing of its ending was very much a product of, of Gorbachev's decision. Yeah, and I think it could have endured. I mean, we have to talk about what does long mean. Um, the, they had endured an awful lot <laughs> in their existence, terrible things, war and uh, so they 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 were pretty good at enduring. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's an important national characteristic. Yes, yes. Learned if not born. Yes. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about writing the book about um, approaching Gorbachev and and his attitude to this and how he participated in the project and and how your view of him has has evolved as a result? Well, um, when I decided I wanted to do it, I first thought of asking his permission, which would have turned it, if he had said yes, into, I guess, what we call an authorized right. biography with his having a certain responsibility to give me materials. But of course, the alternative was he would have said no, mm-hmm. in which case, there were, where would I have been? So instead, I passed the word through Chernyayev, whom I had previously met, that I had decided to do it, and I hoped for his support. And the word came back that he would be supportive. And I think he and he was, by the standards of so of Soviet leaders, uh, he was very supportive. Mm-hmm. He sat still for eight interviews that my wife Jane and I, she having taught Russian at Amherst, uh, had with him. He facilitated our trip to Stavropol and put us in touch with people down there who could put us in touch with people who had worked with him at the time. He helped uh, with access to his archive, although not entirely. At one point, I asked for permission to look at transcripts or notes taken by his 
his aides during his negotiations and talks with foreign leaders, and the word came back, no. And then I asked again, and the word came back, well, pick out 25 or so that you'd <laughs> <Okay>. like. <laughs> so I picked out 25, mm-hmm. and the answer was yes. And when I arrived to look at them, the answer was no ah. again. Uh, and Wait, I think, I've, I've had this experience <laughs> during research. <laughs> I think it was partly because at that point he was putting together a book, mm-hmm. which later came out of excerpts from those negotiations. He didn't and want it, to be scooped. Yeah, and if and if you think the notion that he and I were rivals is seems ludicrous on my part, I tell you, at one point and maybe the seventh, sixth, or seventh interview. I wanted to show him what my manuscript looked like. So, of course, I had it on a computer, and I brought it in. And when we sat down at the table, he pulls out a big pile (laughs) of papers, and he said, you see, I am writing a new book myself. It was the one that's that's called Nayedinia Saboy, Alone by Myself. And he says, and you a big see, stack of paper, apparently. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's his manuscript. He says, you see, we're rivals. <laughs> but, but on the whole, mm-hmm. and he never invited us to his home. Okay. We always had conversations at, the, at his uh, foundation. But all in all, I'm very grateful. It couldn't have come out as well, I hope, as it did without his cooperation. But it's not, I'll say one more thing by way of comparison. My brother, Philip mm-hmm. Taubman, is now writing a biography of George Schultz. Mm. And it's an authorized biography. Mm-hmm. And Schultz gives him everything. And when he does... <laughs> you feel jealous. I feel jealous, yes. <laughs> so what surprised you in writing this book? What did you learn that you didn't expect to uh, look quite that way? Well, I think... I mean, certain some of the details of his childhood I knew nothing about. Mm-hmm. I think nobody knew anything about. We were having this early interview with him talking about his grandparents and his parents and suddenly he says, and in 19, it was 1942, his father's away at the war. His mother, he says, my mother reached for her belt to whip me again. I was stunned. Not that, not that this had happened, but that he would share it mm-hmm. with us. And before, But it was so normal. I mean, well, in Russia, in those, yes, yes, yes. In those days, yes. and for a lot longer, right? Pa- parents' belts were a fairly normal yes, uh, yes. threat to that, a child's existence. But the fact that it was widespread doesn't preclude it from having a particular impact on a particular person. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Yeah. It's still abuse. Yeah. And he said, Gorbachev said, so I, I grabbed her arm and I took it away. And then he says, she wept. And we, I asked, why did she weep? And he said, because I was the last person she could control, and now she could no longer control me. And I immediately leaped <laughs> to all kinds of complicated psychological conclusions about how this might have affected his, him as a person. I later retreated from them. I I've, thought, I've got to say, mm-hmm. what the, sorry, what, it, what that says to me is just what, a tremendous amount of awareness, actually, of understanding that's why his mother cried or yes. thinking that. I mean, yes. that's most ab- abused children who eventually get big enough to make the abuser stop never contextualize it quite that way. The thing is that Gorbachev is a, is a combination of a man who will talk mm-hmm. this candidly and openly, and then at other times when asked about himself will clam up mm-hmm. as if he doesn't want to look too deeply mm-hmm. into himself. And at one point, Yakovlev, Alexander Yakovlev says that, and I quote that at the end mm-hmm. of the introduction. Um, so the whole childhood 
and the, the nature of the grandparents, the lovely nature of the father who seems to have been a wonderful person, the ways in which this may have contributed to Gorbachev's self-confidence, his optimism, his trust mm-hmm. in people at a time and a place where few people trusted each mm-hmm. other. So that was a, a kind of revelation. Um, apart from that, I didn't expect so many times to react uh, negatively to his miscalculations and his the ways in which he undermined himself by his overconfidence or his arrogance. And, and I, I would get irritated. And I have to admit, I think in an early draft of the book, it even led me to take some sort of pot shots at him. Mm-hmm. And when a couple of early readers said, no, no, you're being, you're being too nasty, I looked at it and I decided I, they were right. And I, mm-hmm. I took them out and tried to tell the story in a somewhat more neutral way. And that's historical hindsight also, right? You, you get angry yes, at things yes, because yes. you know what happened. Yes, yeah. right. Spe- right. If, Speaking of contextualizing. If you know how it ended, it affects your account <laughs> of how it got there. Did you have a similar experience writing about Khrushchev? Well, that was a different case because, of course, he was gone. Right, so you don't have that kind of access. Uh, I I did, however, feel frustrated with him too. You know, one comes to identify, even if you try to resist doing so with your subject, you get to know him and his time and his Mm -hmm. people and you – if it's if he's basically trying to do good, you want him to succeed. Yeah. And when he doesn't, even if you know yeah. that it didn't work. <laughs> yeah. uh, but the difference between writing about somebody who's dead and somebody who's alive is very interesting. First of all, if he's alive, you have the great advantage if he agrees to of talking to him. Um, the advantage of <laughs> writing about somebody who's dead, it turns out, is that the people who are around him, who are still around, are willing to talk to you more candidly yes. because. Sure. They can't have him call them up the next day and say, what the hell did you say? So I have an example of this. When I was interviewing, uh, when I was doing Khrushchev, I called up Simichasny, Mm -hmm. the KGB chief at the time Khrushchev was ousted. And uh, I said to him, I'm an American professor. I'd like to interview you. He said, how much can you pay me? (laughs) (laughs) I said, how much do you want? You know, a couple of hundred bucks, no problem. I went to his house. I interviewed him. He was very interesting. This time I called up Bakatin, who was also briefly the head Mm -hmm. of the the KGB uh, and a minister of interior. And this time I said, uh, I'm writing Gorbachev's biography. Would you have the, all of this in Russian, would you have the time and the interest for me to interview? He said, I have the time but not the interest. <laughs> Which is a very Russian response. <laughs> and I was pretty sure it had to do with his his view of Gorbachev having soured a little bit and is not mm-hmm. wanting to yeah. go public with did, it. Did yeah. you? Well, I was going to say, I guess another difference between writing a biography of a living person and a, a non-living person is that with one of them, you know how the story ends. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, even though Gorbachev is now, what is he, 85? 87 86? in okay. March. Um, politically, you know, he's probably not probably back. done, but at the same time, you know, there's still maybe more to the story. Right. I mean, he's mm-hmm. still somebody who has a an impact, whereas Khrushchev is, is a historical figure. Something may come out about Gorbachev, which proves my whole book wrong. It could <laughs> happen. But, but you know, I think I think an interesting question in general, right? When you, when you write history, different people have different memories um, of the same events. 
you do have different, and they're all, you know, like the conversations about the future of NATO, uh, people can come out of the same right, conversation right. with a very different sense of it. Did you come across a lot of very um, incompatible memories of uh, of these of the uh, Gorbachev's life or of key events? I'm trying to remember particular cases where there were clashing accounts. Well, I mean. If if I go go back to Stavropol, mm -hmm. where we interviewed a lot of people who worked with him, some of the people there thought at the time they say and still think that he was wonderful. Mm -hmm. He was a kind of model for for them. He was a model when it came to the way he treated his wife. Mm -hmm. Right, you mentioned they, that, but, which you know, yeah, they they talk about. Did other people then treat their spouses better as a result, or <laughs> did they just think, "Wow, it's nice that they have such a good relationship." <laughs> But there were other people who hated his guts and still do. Mm -hmm. And they described him as arrogant and uh, awful and uh, narcissist. There was this one guy there who had been his number two in the party. Uh, and when we went down there, he was the president of a local university. Mm -hmm. And he just raged on and on about Gorbachev as what he called a Stavropol narcissist. Narcissus. Mm -hmm. But this guy was a was a, nar a narcissist on steroids. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. So there's that kind of thing. I mean, I guess, and this is no revelation either uh, for me to say this, but in history as, I suppose, in fiction, you know, the story, it's based on facts as best you can learn them, but you still have to interpret them and right. you have to put right. them together and you have to and construct when you create, create to the narrative. a story. Create a narrative. Mm -hmm. and, and in the end... You don't know how much of yourself is Did, there. What were what were Gorbachev's regrets? What were the things that he talked about? Well, there he admits he made mistakes, and the kinds of mistakes that he admits uh, were important. For example, he says he should have run for president in a general popular election in mm -hmm. 1990 rather than being appointed, selected by the Congress of People's Deputies, because that would have given him the kind of legitimacy that yeah. Yeltsin Mandate. later got. Mm -hmm. He said he used to say that one of his mistakes was not going faster to break with the, the hardliners and mm -hmm. to push the reforms earlier than he did. I'm not sure he would still say that now because I think he might well have come around to the idea that he went too fast, mm -hmm. at least from the point of view of changing the society in the, in the, in the major way that he attempted. Um, but he, regardless of what he would say, I think those mistakes, if that's what they were, are not decisive really in the end. Um, he will also say, but not in as detailed a fashion, that he was too confident. Mm -hmm. He was too self-confident. Mm -hmm. That, I think, is a bigger mistake because that, I think, shaped everything. Mm -hmm. That shaped, as I said earlier, the notion that he could control the hardliners when when Matlock, Ambassador Matlock, warned him mm -hmm. of the possible coming coup in 1991, he said, no, no, I guarantee it. It couldn't happen. I don't think he said that. He might have said this to Matlock, but he did say it to somebody else. He said, those guys need me more than I need them. So that kind of total confidence mm -hmm. in self blinded him to well, that threat. Well, he was he right. Was right. He, he, they failed, but he didn't really realize is. that they didn't. Well, he, but yes, but he also, what he didn't understand was they didn't th see it that way. Yeah. They might have been wrong, but right. they didn't see it that way. Also, the way he handled Yeltsin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I try to show 
that in effect he helped to create Yeltsin as his enemy by the way he treated him. Now, Yeltsin was very difficult, if not impossible, to deal with in those years. And one can understand why Gorbachev felt that way. But when you read about how how, um, Yeltsin prepared for the October 1987 Mm -hmm. Central Committee meeting where he attacked Gorbachev for the first time and how Gorbachev then let loose the hounds and the mm-hmm. wolves who, who attacked Yeltsin and then how Gorbachev ordered that Yeltsin be in effect taken out of the hospital and brought to the meeting mm-hmm. of, the, of the Moscow City mm-hmm. Party Committee and, and uh, in effect fired. Uh, and you see how not, Gorbachev not only allowed everybody to pile on but piled on himself. Right. Mm-hmm. That... Yeltsin, and I don't think I have, I yet have the answer to this, but Yeltsin somehow triggered something in Gorbachev, mm-hmm. you know, which led Gorbachev to behave without his usual caution and prudence, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and and he paid the price. Now, you started this project after Yeltsin had already died, right? So you never had a chance to interview him. I started the project. In two thousand five six. Okay. So I think Yeltsin. No, Yeltsin was still alive, wasn't he? In two thousand seven. Yeah, I think he died in two thousand seven. Yeah, we went to Gorbachev's seventy fifth birthday party, which was in a uh, banquet hall outside of Moscow with no big, really big Russian officials, and we were told that a, a couple of months earlier, Yeltsin's birthday party mm-hmm. had been in the Kremlin with uh-huh. Putin uh-huh. in attendance. <laughs> uh-huh. But did you talk to Yeltsin at all? In the no, I didn't this? talk to Yeltsin. Okay. Relied on Tim Colton mm-hmm. and Leon Aaron and yeah. Yeltsin's own books, Absolutely. which are awfully <laughs> revealing. <laughs> you know, we were touching before on this question of how much of the end of the Cold War was the result of Gorbachev versus systemic factors. You know, obviously, you're somebody who's written a couple of biographies now. Could you talk maybe a little bit about how you see the role of, of you know, the great man or great woman in history? Well, one one of the one of the founders of the great man or woman, the, great man, actually, we're talking about uh, the 19th century. But but they meant great person. It, it applies, <laughs> yes. Uh, Even then, right? They I'm probably would have allowed his name. a few I'm women. I'm suddenly in. blanking on his name. The the British historian. Uh, <laughs> Who said, who said, history is but the biography of great yeah, men. Yeah. And, and of course, the first thing is it's not just men. But – and the second thing is it's much more than great men and women. It's, it's uh, economic conditions, political circumstances. It's uh, weak it's men every, and women. It's, right. It's, 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 it's many, many things. It's terrible men and women. <laughs> right. Well but the, the, thing, the thing is that when you have – Gorbachev is, is a classic example of somebody who did – affect history in a mm-hmm. central, important way. And that's partly because he had the power that came with being the leader of mm-hmm. a, let's call it post-totalitarian system by 1985. Mm-hmm. But it also, but I think key to this is his uniqueness. Mm-hmm. Gorbachev did what nobody else in his circle would have done. Yeah. He had only three supporters in the Politburo until almost the very end, Shevardnadze, Yakovlev, and Vadim Medvedev. But they were there only because he had either appointed them or kept them there. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when, when, he, when you can establish that somebody like him is unique, that is an invitation to try to figure out his character mm-hmm. and how it affected what he did. Because otherwise, I mean, you could, if he does what others would have done, you can say, well, they all shared values right. that were widespread mm-hmm. in society. 
Or you might say, they all are following the dictates of a situation or of a crisis mm -hmm. that they all recognize are mm -hmm. dictates. Right. But when he does something like trying to mm -hmm. change his country in five or six yeah. years, uh, that's different. That's unique. But you know, another um, part of this that occurs to me, which doesn't actually require Gorbachev or anybody like him to be quite as unique, but does argue for tracing his life, is the question of how the, for the political, economic, and other forces shaped him and turned him into a person who could do that, even if there were a number of people who could have been in that position. He is a product of the world that built him. He, you know, that's tautological, right? But the the grandparents, the parents, the history in which he grew up made him who he was. Yes, I guess I'm reaching for a distinction which mm -hmm. <laughs> may not be worth reaching mm -hmm. for between biography as justifiable to explain how a person becomes who he or she mm -hmm. is, who then does so much, uh -huh. between simple biography and what I would call psychologically informed biography. Mm -hmm. I'm, de I'm deliberately re not using the term psychobiography right. because I'm not qualified to do that. <laughs> and anyway, I think it leads a lot of people astray to mm -hmm. reducing right. some big complicated person to the way he or she was toilet trained. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so that, that's not it. But psychologically informed biography, meaning in the, that you look for the sources in the up bringing or in the early career of uh, behavior or of attitudes or approaches that seem to require a, a psychological explanation. In other words, this kind of self-confidence, that is special. That isn't just uh, out there, mm -hmm. especially for a person who was born in 1931 right. and who loses two uncles and an aunt and a famine, and both grandfathers are arrested and sent to the gulag, and his village is occupied by the Nazis. That sounds like everybody was born in 1931. <laughs> well, right, but they don't all turn out like they don't, they all, don't turn, all turn out, like especially at the top of the Communist Party. Absolutely. Yes. Anyway, that's that's the kind of defense I, I make of biography. And it's, I think it's a good defense, and it's a fascinating book. So I think Jeff and yeah, I both yeah. recommend. Uh, and there'll be a link to it in the in the show notes, so people can purchase it from and, an independent bookseller. Yes. Would you like to add my website? We will we do, can that. do that. Yes. That, that, that <laughs> also uh, will, will be it's linked called, in the show notes. It's WilliamTaubmanBooks.com. Excellent. Okay. Which will remind them to also read your other books. <laughs> um, so thank you for joining us. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. That's it for our show today. We will provide a link to Bill's book in the show notes. If you haven't already, do consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes and go ahead, leave us a rating and a review while you're at it. If you're not an iTunes user, you can check out the podcast and subscribe via Google Play or on SoundCloud, which of course you know, because if you're not an iTunes user, that's probably how you're listening. But do also spread the word to your friends, whatever um, platform they use to listen to podcasts, that this is definitely a podcast they should check out. And if you're enjoying the podcast, but wondering why we don't talk about this, that, or the other thing, let us know. Ask us. Send in your mailbag questions to rep at csis.org with the words Russian roulette in the subject line. We look forward to hearing from you and answering some questions soon. 
You can follow the program on Twitter. The program is at CSIS Russia. You can follow the two of us on Twitter. I'm at Olya Olaker, and Jeff is at Dr. J. Mankoff. Finally, big thanks to everyone who puts in all the work that makes this podcast happen every two weeks. That includes our research assistant, program coordinator, and podcast producer, Cyrus Newland, our intern, Claire Hafner, and the entire CSIS external relations and iLab team. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.